0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 19th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein.
3: Hey, folks. Hey, do you know what happened 35 years ago today? Not a clue.
4: Somebody was born. Someone died.
3: Nope. Something ended. Almost. Well, something died, sort of. The last manned lunar flight, Apollo 17, crewed by Saran Evans and Schmidt, returns to Earth, ending the Apollo space program.
2: Oh, wow.
1: That was 35 years, huh? 35 years,
3: 1972.
2: I remember it like it was yesterday.
1: And we've never been back to Bend the moon back. since then. Hmm. What a nope. joke. Mm. Curious. <laughs> mm.
5: Nobody would have predicted that. Except for all the moon hoax people.
1: <laughs> Both of them. We have an excellent interview coming up later in the show with Richard Wiseman, but first some news items. The first one is about Rebecca's pilot on NPR, which is finally complete and Yay. Uh, Yay. on the webby thing it, for, for your downloading and It
2: is, in fact, on the webby thing. You can get it at Uh, It's called Curiosity Aroused, first of all. And you can find it, if you just go to curiosityaroused.com, there's a link there to listen to it. And, yeah, I think it went really well. I'm
3: surprised that domain was available, Rebecca.
2: Um, Yeah, it was. Um, A little old lady had it, but I wrestled it out of her her wrinkled little hands. Um, (laughs) Thank
3: goodness. You saved us all.
1: (laughs) You managed to work the term aroused into the title. I did,
2: which um, I didn't think was going to fly. I suggested it as a joke to my producer, and he liked it. So we went with it. Hey, Rebecca. Yes, Jay.
4: How long did it take you to produce the show? How long front to back, all your research and recording, and then then the uh, post-production?
2: Well, I guess we started back in September when they announced that I was one of the three winners of the Talent Quest. And from that moment until just this... Just last week was when we finished everything up. Yeah, a good a good three months of work went into it, and a lot of people helped out. Um, my, I had a producer who, Richard Paul, who's fantastic and worked very hard for me, and my engineer, um, Mike Wilkins, who I'd met during one of the earlier rounds of the Talent Quest. Who hel- he let me come into the studio um, at the local NPR station and use the studios. And John Huntington is, um, was my sound engineer, and he happens to be the guy who helped us all put, to, put on our live show, or um, the live podcast in New York this past August. So I was just there, there were a lot of great people who, who helped me pull it together, and including you guys for being very supportive and all of our listeners for voting.
4: Hey, it was our pleasure.: Thank you. What will happen now? Are you going to, uh, if they pick you up, if they like yours and they think it's good enough, is it going to be a -a once-a-month show? Is it going to be
2: once a week? Well, now the show will go to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and hopefully they will love it and give me a ton of money to go ahead and produce more shows, and it would probably be a -a once-a-month show, like documentary series sort of thing. I see. um, For the moment, though, we've got the pilot episode, and it just went up on PRX.org, and Uh, NPR station owners can go on there and or station managers can go on there and purchase the show. And we've already um, it it just went up today and a station in Seattle already purchased it. That will be playing in Seattle, I think, this Sunday, the 23rd at 1 p.m. on the local Seattle station. So excellent. Yeah. Hopefully more stations will follow suit. Awesome, God! I hope it works out. Me too. I I, I think it went really well, and um, yeah, it was a great show to listen to. It was great. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Obviously, you know, a lot of uh, stuff overlapped with our show. For instance, we did the Psychic Fair episode, right? Um, and a huge chunk of my show was about that. And also, there's a, an interview with Richard Wiseman, who happens to be on the show today. So,
1: well, it's a small world. It, you know. It's
2: a small skeptical world. That's true,
1: Jay yeah you blog you blog today about one of an uncommon peril of of believing in the supernatural and promoting belief in the supernatural. Can you tell us about it? yeah,
4: I wrote I blogged about it because I've never quite heard a story like this one before. It just struck me as amazingly funny, even though it's kind of tragic. The one two on it is is that this man named uh Yanadi, I think that's the way you'd pronounce his name uh, in India claim to have a magic leg literally he said my leg's magic it can cure you and it can heal you and it can grant you wishes i speculated on the blog that eh, you know did the guy really believe his leg was magic or did he whip it up you know to generate some money for himself and maybe some publicity and you know to have fun we'll probably never know the truth on that although
1: that's a common shtick in india where he comes from the magic man bit i mean that's very common there
4: What happened was two of his customers, these two guys, paid him to touch his leg. I guess they were very pleased because what they did was they got the guy wasted at some later date or later time, got him drunk. They cut his leg off, and they took it. They stole his magic leg. Now, they stole his leg because it was magic, (laughs) and then the next logical question is what are they going to do? Use it? Like, now they're going to reuse this guy's magic leg? Yeah, it didn't serve him very well. No, it didn't. And I mentioned on my blog, I'm like, you'd figure if they really believed it was magic and it can grant wishes, then why didn't they instantly wish for the guy's
1: leg to grow back? So he, they didn't get in trouble. Well, they left him, they left him to die. Yeah. But, but he was found by local villagers who brought him to the hospital. So they, they were figuring he was going to be dead and not alive to Narcon so i guess they're they 're evil How do you know?
5: survive that? How do you survive that? Major artery going through your leg? you cut it off don 't you literally have minutes to live unless in that unless that you have some put some pressure on that, or a tourniquet or something
1: yeah Is Maybe that, they it, tied it off yeah well i't don't, I, I don't know if they left him for dead, I imagine they did not tie it off if they left him for dead, but and it was at at the knee or below the knee I mean you wouldn't be dead in minutes, but you you know you can't survive for too long with that kind of an injury
4: well, Steve, best case scenario let's say you wanted to cut somebody's leg off under this under this auspice it's not a surgical environment it's not clean. I doubt that they had a weapon or something. They used a sickle. They used a sickle. Could they swipe it off in one shot with
1: a sickle? You think? No. They, no. they probably would have had to it's hack at them a little hack bit through it. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be a messy job. When you like a, a surgical amputation is very precise, and you and you do lots of procedures to create to create padding at the bottom of the knee and to minimize blood loss, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really intricate procedure. It's not just you know sawing through <laughs> at one level. Uh, what, the, what these guys did—almost a literal hatchet job—I'm sure it's going to be a mess. It'll probably have to be, you know, completely redone, you know, reworked, so that he could wear a prosthetic, et cetera, et cetera. It is—it is, it is amazing that he survived, but not impossible. I thought it was funny if you—if you play
4: out the scenario in your head. So what really? What did they do with the leg? Did they want? Did they sequester it away in their house and, and instantly start making wishes off of it? Did they intend to reuse it and charge people to touch this guy's rotting leg? Maybe they attached a keychain mm-hmm. to it. You're right. Maybe they uh-huh. rubbed it. You know, they go to the they go to the track and they're like, "Come on, seven, You know, whatever.
2: <laughs> I think it's just lucky for the magic man that he didn't claim that some other body part was magical. Right. I mean, think of the possibilities. Imagine. If you were trying to pick up a lady, you know.
1: I have a magical neck. Okay, yeah, I wasn't thinking <laughs> yeah. neck,
2: but
1: okay. <laughs> well, it's safe to assume that Yanadi's dancing days are over. I mean, it's obviously a sad and tragic story, but just think, yeah, you're right, Jay. Think of the mentality of people who hack off somebody's leg and start running around with this rotting leg thinking it's magical. It's just, it does. Were they psyched after they did it? We got it! We got the leg! You know, it's like, come
4: on. How crazy and stupid do you have to be to. Cut the guy's leg off and run away with with his leg, and think you're going to do something with it. I don't know. I, I I can't take stuff like this.
5: In my mind, they would. What would they do? They would go to a either their house or some secure place, and just what would you do? You'd start making wishes, start rubbing yeah. the leg, and make your wishes. And you know what? What would you wish for? I wish I had a billion dollars. I wish I had. I wish
3: I don't get fully, caught. you know,
5: fully mature nanotech technology, whatever. And these things aren't appearing. And after a couple hours, you would think they'd be like, "Well, shit! These these wishes aren't coming true."
3: Bob, you know what's they going thought, on? We cut the, we wrong, cut the wrong, wrong, wrong leg off. <laughs> off. We go back and get the other one. <laughs> oh, that happens in hospitals all the time.
5: Yeah, I
4: wish there was going to be a follow up, but I doubt it. I mean, the, the, here's the follow up. Okay, they caught the guys. You know, yeah. all right.
1: Yeah, those stories are usually one off.
2: Jay, what was your blog title? My blog
4: title was legs talk this over. Yeah,
2: for that you should be kicked off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why him good speak? That that's the worst <laughs> title I think I've ever heard. That is the worst pun <laughs> I think I've ever seen. Well,
4: what what would you have had the title be then? That's a little, what, you know um, throw one at me.
2: How to get a leg up?
4: <laughs> that's not that funny. Try again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> come on for off the top of my head that wasn't bad <laughs> well, well how about the mine mag- for off the top of my head I
3: did
1: it in 30 seconds I didn't
2: have much time Ma-
1: you know, magical really mystery hit. leg we, we, we have to hire a new uh, headline writer yeah okay uh, one more news item um, a bit of a creationism update the uh, intelligent design proponents and creationists have been their, their shtick in 2007 has mostly been to, to cry discrimination that those academics and researchers and scientists who are doubting evolution are being systematically discriminated against because of the you know the uh, the big secular Darwinist conspiracy against them uh, and there have been a number of cases uh, that have been put forward for that one. Um, one case is the, Gil- the Guillermo Gonzalez case, again, where a, a a researcher was not given tenure, and he claimed it was because he's an intelligent design proponent. But in fact, he, the guy's just not productive; he's not publishing. Now, there was recently a an, another such case. This one from Boston: a Christian biologist is suing Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute of Massachusetts, saying that he was uh, that he was fired because of his religious beliefs. He and he is a he describes himself as a bible believing christian, he is a creationist, he does not accept evolution. Again, he's saying that it had nothing to do with the the quality of his work. It was simply based on his religious beliefs. The uh, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination dismissed the case on the basis that Nathaniel Abraham—that's that's the scientist—that his request not to work on evolutionary aspects of research would be difficult for Woods Hole because the work is in, in based upon evolutionary theories. So again, this gets back to the the whole you know freedom versus standards in academia. You know, academic institutions have the right, in fact, the duty. To, to promote high standards and if you're, you know, a scientific institution, having a, a faculty member or a scientist who, you know, believes something that is you know directly pseudoscientific or anti-scientific and that's, you know, germane to their work, I think you have a you know, you have a right to say, you know, for quality control purposes you're not appropriate for our institution, but
4: Well, it does call into question their reasoning, which is a part of what what you hired them for. Mhm. And I think it's a I think it's a reasonable consideration uh to take those types of things into into account when you're anal- when you know, reviewing them or whatever. I mean it's also one of those things it doesn't seem like they knew it going into it, and it was a discovery after the person was hired. And as you stated, Steve, it, they are reflecting back on the person's work and not just right. that belief.
1: Yeah, I guess you know, from a theoretical point of view, if you had a scientist, even an evolutionary biologist or whatever, this sounds incredible, but let's say a hypothetical case where they were a creationist or an intelligent design proponent, but they said... That's, those are my religious beliefs. I believe in creationism, but I understand evolution, and I, and I can certainly work within the framework of evolutionary theory in terms of my work. So just like a, you, you could theoretically have a, t- a biology teacher who will teach evolution out of the textbook even though they don't believe it, or you can have students who learn evolution even though they don't necessarily believe it. So you, don't ha- you can separate out the belief... But it, but it certainly is tricky. If you're, it's most tricky if you're a researcher and and you have to work within you know the paradigm of evolution without believing it. I mean that I don't know if that's actually workable. In, in these cases that have come up, that's not even the question because in in every case so far, it, it has been a, a significant factor in their job performance. It's not just you know their belief that is at issue.
5: I think that's a great example of how. It's so important to show that religious freedom doesn't extend everywhere and every place. Mm -hmm. They're not compatible. Science and these types of – this type of dogma, this type of religious belief, they are not compatible. And I think the workplace is a great form for really exposing that.
1: Yeah, it's also interesting that this is, you know, we, we speculated in in the past about, like, what's the next phase of intelligent design going to be after they lost uh, famously at Dover. Right. Um, so promoting the teaching of intelligent design as an alternate theory to evolution failed miserably, although they haven't given that fight up yet. They're still fighting it state to state. That, they mm-hmm. were, it was dealt a pretty bad blow. And uh, and now we sp- we see what their next phase of their strategy is. It's just now the, the crying of academic freedom, uh, and and that's the whole movie Expelled is about that. That's you know Ben Stein's movie that's coming out in February. Mm. This this, is, this has been their strategy for the year, and it's it's not working. Uh, in cases like this, they have not been successful in successfully suing or arguing their case. But you know this, and if you read the Discovery Institute's blog, it's full of this. This is they're ranting about this for a while. Right, well, let's move on to your questions and emails first one comes from Alan Hewitt from the USA, and Alan writes, I have just finished listening to your interview with Alex from Skeptico, and I was very pleasantly surprised at how constructive a dialogue you put together. I had never heard Alex speak before, and he came across as a very nice guy, more willing than many of the true believers to talk about testing and evidence. However, as a practicing scientist, I was dismayed at his umbrage, induced by criticisms of methodology and other aspects of published studies. Whilst you tried to convince him of the rigor and vigor of analysis between scientists, I think that Many members of the public still do not see this side of the scientific process enough. Some more polite examples can be seen in the letters and responses pages of such esteemed organs as nature and science. Often the more pointed questions are raised at scientific conferences. Indeed, the entire point of a journal club often seems to be to take delight in dismembering a rival's latest article. Uh, He goes on in that vein, but that's the gist of his email. So thank you, Alan, for writing in. And I include this letter because I had a lot of letters from working scientists saying exactly the same thing. When we interviewed Alex last week, one of his complaints was that skeptics are harsh in our criticism of the research of of parapsychologists, and I tried to make the point that this is just the way all scientists are, this is just the way it is, and he didn't believe it. So it was good to get support from so many working scientists, essentially Echoing that point, yeah, this is pretty much the way work a day scientists are also uh, the the conversation last week kind of got away from that point i didn 't off the top of my head really come up with good examples from myself and The, the next day, I did chat to Alex some examples of my writing where um, I have been harshly critical of researchers and scientists who are not dealing with the paranormal and Alex accepted those examples said he would look over them and hasn't responded further to them. One of the ones I I sent him was um Mark and David Gear who are physicians who are doing research on the connection between autism and vaccines a topic which I write about quite a bit and myself and other you know science bloggers uh, have been ruthlessly critical of these guys and and basically saying that their statistics are crap, their ethics are questionable, you know they they don't know what they're doing. Their their conclusions are wrong because their methods are completely flawed. Uh, you know, pretty much as harsh as you can get. Harsher than I've uh, than anything I've ever said about any of the parapsychologists. Because you know, when it comes to medical issues, you know, it's even more important that that the criticism gets aired without pulling any punches. So that's I do think that's an important point uh, to emphasize, and I, I I do think it was not emphasized enough during the uh, the interview last week. The next email comes from Jacob. Arbogast from St. Louis, Missouri, and he writes... I'll make it short, former believer, recent skeptic. However, despite my deductive reasoning, I can't figure out this cattle mutilation thing. I mean, thousands of reports from different areas of the world, surgically precise incisions. It's bizarre. Removal of the tongue, trachea, and esophagus, the removal of sexual organs, the coring out of the anus up to 14 inches deep into the animal, found with no tracks, sometimes having fallen through trees to land in a crater on the ground from its own weight, surrounded by broken branches from the trees. What the hell, man? Could you cover this on the show or in the or at least email me back with a skeptical answer, or is this a genuine mystery? Well, thank you for the question, Jacob. What Jacob is talking about is uh, the belief that aliens or some other uh, agents are abducting cattle, producing some kind of uh, uh, experiments on them, mutilating them in some way, and then leaving them on on the ground to be later discovered by uh, amazed and bemused ranchers. Jacob gave the details that are typically cited to uh, to make it seem as if this is a genuine mystery. Uh, However, all of those details are, in fact, uh, either wrong or completely misrepresented. This issue has actually been... Uh, very thoroughly investigated, going back to the 1970s, the first judicial district of New Mexico commissioned a study, and an ex-FBI agent, Rommel, produced a 297-page report in 1980, and he looked at all of these details. Going through you know, Jacob's claims, here's the, his, the answer to each and every one of these – one claim is that these cattle are often found with surgically precise incisions, and that is not correct. Uh, any uh, cuts uh, that are made in the animals can be produced by claws and teeth. What happens is when the, uh, the corpse dries out, the skin or the hide stretches and as you can imagine if you've ever worked with cloth or with leather or whatever if you cut it and then you stretch it along the edge it makes it extremely taut and and straight and can look you know quote unquote precise in its straightness but that's just an artifact of the of the shrinkage and the sh- and the stretching when you actually examine the the wounds however they they show the telltale signs of having been made in more prosaic fashion they're not they do not in fact look like surgical incisions, either made by a laser or or a scalpel, which is the claims that are made. The removal of the tongue, trachea, and esophagus, that is an absolutely typical pattern for scavengers. Small scavengers will eat the soft body parts, and they will core out the soft body parts. They'll go into the mouth and eat all the the tongue and the cheek and the esophagus, and then leave. They can't cut through the thick hide, so they just go for those parts of the body that they can get access to. So that pattern...
2: By the way, those those listeners who are currently eating lunch might want to step away for just a moment. Go on. (laughs) Yeah, kind
1: of late with that warning, but you're right. right. Yeah, well, Um, you know. Tongue is a delicacy. Yeah, so that's, this is like absolutely typical for scavengers. They're just eating the soft parts. Found with no tracks, not true. That's just factually incorrect. What was found is that there were the typical tracks and droppings of scavengers all around these uh, you know, dead cattle. Uh, falling through trees to land in a crater—that's just made up. I mean, that's—I've seen no re, no <laughs> credible reports of that. I've never even heard that one before. That's just uh, that's just the a you know, little bit of an expansion of this urban legend. But there's no there's no cases of that. The you know there, there's a certain amount of range death. You know, if you have thousands of cattle on the range, you know, ranchers you know, accept a certain amount of range death from either you know, predation or disease or whatever, and Scavengers will, you know, usually get at them before they're discovered. That's this is a completely mundane, prosaic phenomenon that we're dealing with here. There's no mysteries here at all. It is simply the UFO community latching onto this and distorting the details, making stuff up and creating a mystery where one does not exist.
2: Did we not mention anal probes at all? Oh yeah. That?
1: Coring out the anus Can up not- to 14 inches deep into the animal. Yeah. I, I guess we, they do probe them before they core out the anuses. Right,
2: okay. I just want to make sure we say anus <laughs> right. a few more times while we have the opportunity. It, I guess it's
1: fortunate that when humans are abducted, they're only probed and not cored out. That, that is a fortunate thing. Mm,
2: I wonder why yeah. that is.
1: The other thing, I have to say, the other thing about all this is when you step back and think about what the UFO believers the, the alien abduction believers are saying so the, these aliens are hijacking cattle and then dumping the bodies in the middle of the range why wouldn't they just keep them or dump them in the ocean or, or, or the sun? Them. send them into space drop them in the sun something, <laughs> something other than just dropping them in the range you know where, where they would
2: normally <laughs> be but
4: Steve they're you aliens know, they're it's heartless m- yes. they don't
2: care you know they're not you know they're superior beings. They're litterers. There's no fine. There's no intergalactic littering fine.
1: But again, it's that whole thing about they're hiding their existence, but, but then they're sloppy yeah. and they drop their leavings on the range. I mean, yeah. you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't drive. does
5: be sloppy. It. They should put up signs, 500 Kwatlus for dumped <laughs> steer. <laughs> right,
1: right. Try and collect. <laughs> All right, one more email before we go on to our interview. This one comes from Jay Tarnoff from Temple University, and he writes... Hi, skeptics. I wanted to bring up a point that either Bob or Jay brought up on this week's podcast. Uh, This is actually from a couple weeks ago. One of the skeptics mentioned the fact that some adults have eidetic memory and that some people's memory is unbelievably accurate. I know that eidetic imagery photographic has been hypothesized to exist in cases such as Claude Bonnet or Mozart, but I know of no cases that have been proven. As for memory being unbelievably accurate, the majority of memory tasks involving vast stores of information, like running through the card order of multiple packs of cards, rely primarily on mnemonics. I ran a brief lit review on psych info on eidetic memory. The four cases that popped up were all from the 70s or early 80s and were not very convincing. Keep up the great work, and let me know what you think of edetic memory. Uh, and Bob, you prepared a response to this.
5: Yeah, I actually blogged on it last week. Uh, Jay, thanks for the for the question. It 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 really helped clear some things up for me on on this topic. You're welcome. Uh, one <laughs> one was um, one was that photographic memory pretty much does not exist, which was a, a shock to me. There's really no evidence for. For a classic photographic memory that you know people can can recall with uh, you know photographic fidelity, uh, scenes or images or you know textbook pages or things like that. That that was a surprise, and it was very interesting to find that out. And I'm glad I, that you know I don't spread that kind of myth anymore. Because to me, I just I mean I never did real research on it, but I've read it so many times and heard so many people talking about it that photographic memory just like yeah it it exists so that's that's what happens when you you know when you assume these, these types of things and you don't now, go
1: back to the original sources that's what happens you realize yeah. that there's that there's just chart lore out there or just literature lore.
5: Yeah, so classic photographic memory pretty much does not exist. There's really no evidence for for that. I mean, clearly some people have extraordinary memories of visual memories, but in you know, comparing it to an actual photograph is is not accurate. Now, a memory, that was interesting. I kind of always thought a memory and photographic memory were were pretty much interchangeable, but a memory is isn't in, is in the literature, it's specifically Uh, occurs it's a type of uh, imagery that typically when they test for this they'll put say an image a picture or a drawing in front of in front of somebody let them scan it for a minute or so and then take it away and these these uh, edeticers as they're called can actually see this image their their eyes are scanning it as it's as if it were still there, They're, they talk about it in the present in the present tense and they the detail with which they can uh, recall that image is is striking, not photographic but and it there it is still you know there are still errors that creep in you know common um, memory errors that creep in so it's definitely some sort of reconstructed memory but it 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 can be striking but some of the other some of the caveats with this is that it's pretty much pretty much kids that that, that exhibit this that can that can display this is really all. Practically no evidence of any adults uh, exhibiting this this type of eidetic memory. Um, at least th- the research that I that I've gone through. Uh, so you uh, about five? What is it? What was the percentage? Five to ten percent, six to ten percent of kids can exhibit this type of memory, and then they they lose it as they as they leave ad- adolescence. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's some theories as to why they lose it as you know as abstract thinking comes um, becomes more prevalent in the adult
1: brain that maybe that might be related somehow. Now Bob I found a very interesting research that, that touches on this. And this this came out of our discussion of the, the chimpanzee memory study that showed that chimpanzees can do certain memory Right. Tasks. I suggested
5: that maybe they have some form of aidic memory right. that could explain their memory feat.
1: Well well listen to this. There's actually research looking at using um techniques to to inhibit the functioning of the frontotemporal lobes. Oh yeah, yeah. Under these conditions, five out of 17 participants displayed savant-type skills. They had enhanced skills in declarative memory, drawing, mathematics, and calendar calculating. Uh, So that's interesting. By turning off part of the brain, they had this dramatically improved... Uh, memory function or, or function in certain tasks. And that kind of goes along with what uh, we were speculating about with the chimpanzees. Because you know, the chimpanzees also, one of the big differences between humans and chimpanzees is the, the evolutionary expansion of the frontal temporal lobes. And also that's also a region that develops late in children. So perhaps the thing that human adults have in, in common uh, is this uh, a highly functioning frontal temporal lobe which is in the loop and is therefore, although it's adding a lot of functionality, it's slowing down some more basic stuff. That in kids and chimps who did better on that memory test, and who also you know may show this eidetic type memory, who also don't have this as much of a developed frontotemporal temporal lobe, can have this you know savant-like memory behavior. So this needs further exploration. But that's all kind of pointing in the same direction right. that yep. the frontal lobe is, while while being useful, is actually slowing down the overall process. Right.
5: Damn frontal lobe.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I should get rid of it. Well, let's go on to the interview. Joining us now is Richard Wiseman. Richard, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: And Dr. Wiseman is a professor of psychology at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK, the author of several excellent books, including his most recent one, Quirkology, which we'll be talking about tonight. And uh, Richard, you have now joined the three-timer club on The Skeptic's Guide. This is your third interview with us. And you also have the distinction of being the only person we interviewed twice in 2007, because we did interview you in January at TAM5.
0: I, I'm, I'm very excited about all of those awards. Um, oh, but that's, so that's
2: not true, though. We did Phil plate twice as well. Did we do
0: them twice this year? Oh, that's true. I'm sorry. Phil, Phil doesn't count. I'm not quite so excited about those awards now. <laughs> I, I was excited, and now I'm not excited. So um, but it, but it's, it's nice to be up there in that very elite club with, uh, with just Phil.
1: That's right. And Phil is the only other person, I think, that we've, we've interviewed three times. So Great. You are, you are definitely in a category with, with your good friend, Phil.
0: Okay, now, he's a very nice man. You made the right decision interviewing him three times. In fact, in my opinion, you should have gone with him tonight, and he's got four. It's your down there. Yeah, That's right. He's fully booked. So,
1: Richard, tell us about your new book, Quirkology.
0: Um, well, it's it's very exciting. It's, it's all these strange... Um, mainly social psychological research that I've been conducting over the last 10 years and also the work that has inspired me. So all the kind of weird stuff that psychologists have been up to, looking at the psychology of love, the psychology of laughter, there's a little bit on parapsychology and skepticism in there. Um, so some of the world's best chat-up lines, the world's funniest joke, uh, how the speed at which we walk influences our lives, just all the kind of weird stuff that, that I think is amusing, entertaining, and some sometimes informative
1: so, so two questions for, off the bat is is a chat up line british for a pick up line
0: uh, it is yes, in fact, I meant to say pickup line, and okay. uh, yeah, we, we use that uh, that phrase whenever you're out there in a bar trying to impress a, a man or a woman. Um, yeah, we did a massive uh, speed dating study. Uh, we had a hundred uh, single guys and, and women, and we monitored who was most effective and, and what uh, pickup lines they were using
1: So my second question was, what is the most effective pickup line?
0: Well, what you need to do um, is is really get the other person, particularly if you're speed dating. This is the thing. The the problem with speed dating is because you're having the same conversation again and again and again. And so you need something which is a little bit unusual, a little bit quirky, but most of all gets the other person to talk about themselves in a humorous way because when you have a shared humorous experience, uh, the the liking levels go up massively. And so we found any of those lines like... um, you know if you're going to be a pizza topping what one would you be if you're going to be an animal what would you be and so on anything that gets the person to open up talk about themselves in a creative unusual and and, and presumably funny way uh they they really do work well and so the guys that were using those in the experiment got a hundred percent success rate you know all the women wanted to to meet them again and and vice versa with the women so so that there does seem to be something quite magical about those sorts of lines
1: that that, that's interesting and one of the, the uh, themes that I get from your book is that you're trying to use the everyday sort of you know quirky, for lack of a better term, aspects of human psychology as a window into understanding human nature more fully. Do you, do you agree with that
0: characterization? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, some of it is about methodology. You know, if you're going to look at what makes people laugh, you know, just how do you do that? Um, if you want to find out whether someone's lying to you or not, how do you go about that kind of research? Mm-hmm. So, uh, some of it is about trying to convey methodology in an interesting way. Yeah, I think the the other part of this is that science and and psychology has become increasingly distanced from people 's lives, and, and so I think a lot of the time they just don 't see it as relevant to their everyday life and, and so it 's kind of trying to to put the um, the focus on, you know, in my mind, what what really matters to people, and, and saying, look, science is relevant to your lives. Uh, it, it's entertaining. It's it, it's informative. Um, it's not this kind of distant thing, a distant entity that you don't really fully understand. So, so relevance to people's lives is, is very important.
1: And you, and you, of course, are very interested in teaching science and methodology and specifically psychology to the public in fact don't you you have a chair of uh, the public understanding of psychology isn't that correct
0: that, that's my that's my chair and so yeah I, I get to um, do the quickology website and the YouTube videos and the mass participation experiments' all, all part of that renet and that's
1: part of your academic career
0: if you could take that feel that sound of surprise out of your voice um, <laughs> yes that, 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 surprisingly enough I do refer to it as a career yes the, yeah. the,
1: the surprise <laughs> is that there's you know, there are those of on the other side of the pond who would love to do the same thing but we don't seem to have the same opportunities at least I don't know of any chairs of public understanding of science in America
0: oh that's interesting I didn't realize that I mean we do have a couple here I mean Richard Dawkins, uh, very famously uh, uh, occupies one at Oxford so yeah I mean the UK has always been very big on public understanding of science and hasn't been too kind of po-faced about it you know we we have this sense of of people getting involved in science in a fun way and, and, and that's been reflected in our, our television programming over here as well for, for many years. So and I think some of that is starting to come across to the, the US. I mean, the Mythbusters in its ways is a very sort of British feeling uh, kind of program. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I just think that anything that gets it out there gets people talking about science. You know, I'm not a fan of this idea that scientists have got the answers and the science communication is then just telling the public what the answers are. I, I like this idea of dialogue, of people getting involved, of debating. You know, I, I hope that people read the book and go, hold on a second, that doesn't resonate with me. I think they're wrong about these points. That that whole notion of being involved.
1: Yeah, yeah, we do that all the time. We make mistakes deliberately just to so our listeners will correct us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, that that works. Yeah, that that's great.
1: You talk about the corkology website and interacting with the public and you have a number of experiments on there. And you also mentioned that part of what you're trying to convey is methodology. So that, that leads me to one thing I wanted to ask you about. You have one experiment called the lying experiment where you have an interview with the editor of New Scientist, Jeremy Webb, who's describing two movies that he says are his favorite movie, One about one he's lying and about the other one he's telling the truth, and, and we're supposed to figure out what, when he's lying. It, it's fun, but I do have a critique of, of your methodology. Now, the the first movie he's describing is The Core. That introduced, to me, a a variable that maybe you didn't intend. Because right off, I said, there is no way the editor of The New Scientist liked The Core. Because that was the scientifically most illiterate movie of the year. I think that that, my my initial reaction, which had nothing to do with reading him, whether or not he was lying. It was just that... Did complete disconnect. There's no way a scientist liked that movie. And I also noticed that in your conclusions that scientists were the most successful in figuring out that he was lying, and I wonder if that was a factor in that. What do you think about that?
0: I'm so tempted just to put the phone down at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, I'll fight that temptation. Um, you see, that's what I like. That, that, that's If And I've had lots of emails to that that effect from that experiment. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is science communication. Yeah. And and, 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 and that people are looking at that and going, hold on a second, there's a potential confound here, as, as psychologists would refer to it, that one story is a lot more plausible than the other and that may account for the pattern in your results. And then the next stage is, well, what would you do about that? Well, you might have several people lying and telling the truth or you might make certain that the clips are matched on plausibility. So all of the experiments on the site, I don't claim to be perfect because I don't think psychology works like that. I hope what they do is get people to think critically, which is exactly what you have just done, but in a way which is very grounded. I think when you talk about critical thinking with people in the abstract, they, they kind of become a bit glazed. If you can ground it and say, here's the study, what, what do you think? And we have it big time with the Laugh Lab study, the search for the, the world's um, funniest joke. Um, some people are very critical of the methodology. And I have no problem with that. You know, I, I rather enjoy that
1: yeah I, 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 using it as an example I think of it 's a very interactive way to sort of get people to think about how science actually works. I think if science is this big black box that spews out answers, then you know people are not going to accept the answers as much or they, they become vulnerable to pseudoscience because it, it, pseudoscience and science are, are become just this anonymous source of information and they have no way of distinguishing reliable information from unreliable information.
0: Absolutely. And also you know, what tends to happen with science reporting is one week you hear and you hear this for example with n- nutrition all the time, one week it's good to drink red wine, the next week it's bad to drink red wine and the public need to understand why you get those kind of inconsistencies, why one set of studies may show one thing and, and something else show another other, um, because otherwise they're just hearing one week one message, next week the next, and they're thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't understand why these people can't make up their minds. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I, if anything, I'm, I'm a methodologist, and so that you know, I, I'd rather like those sorts of things that, that get people to engage, and, and, and hopefully that's that's what the, the studies do on the site.
1: Uh, another, another thing you have on the Quirkology site, which uh, is a little different, is uh, the videos, and the videos show of uh, various uh, card tricks or other types of tricks. And you know, it seems what you're trying to do here is to show the limitations of, of human perception and and thinking, uh, and that that is an important piece of information for us to have to understand uh, ourselves.
0: Well, the, the, the origin of those, particularly the color change card trick, which is the one which has really gone viral and has, I think, almost 2 million hits now. The, the Crocology channel on YouTube is just over 4 million. Mm-hmm. The, the original thinking was how could we produce something which has its basis in psychology, but yet people want to show to their friends and they're taking something away from it. And I honestly didn't know whether it'd it would work. It cost about £50 pounds to, to film that clip. It's, it was a very sort of quick and dirty um, sort of day's work. We put it on there and it, it, it went uh, it went viral. And I, I, I think it's, it's really saying to people, Yes, when we look around us, we may not fully understand, you know, exactly what's in front of our eyes. We can be fooled. It's, it's sort of like a, a, a kind of videotape of a, an optical illusion in, in that sense. And it's just saying, the same as the Quirkology book, life is more interesting than it may appear some of the time because actually these amazing illusions are happening right in front of us all the time this tells us a huge amount about perception right. and what's been really surprising is the response from YouTube you know it has been very positive it does show that in order to get up there with those sort of large number of views it doesn't just need to be a dog falling off a table you know there, there are other ways of, of attracting viewers and, and some of the comments on there means that people have gone off and looked at change blindness or an attentional blindness come back and written about it and so on so I, I think we're starting to see a new era of, of science communication using these sorts of technologies
1: yeah I think it's, I think it's it's great and you say you get you know two million people looking at at a psychological experiment essentially I mean th- that's more outreach than, than I think anything else uh, I, I know about um, but I, I do think also that this is the big intersection between psychology and skepticism. And uh, you know, we we often observe that magicians tend to be skeptics because you know they learn how to fool people and how how easy it is to be fooled. And I think psychologists also um, often make good skeptics because again they see all the foibles of human memory and perception and attention, et cetera. And once you start to realize how easy it is that we can be fooled and fooled ourselves, that is a very critical sort of skeptical window into how can so many people believe so many things that are just absolutely
0: dead wrong. Yeah, I I think the thinking, uh, I think uh, that's absolutely right. I agree with all of that. I think, though, as me you know, I have a background in magic, and one of the problems with magic and, and skepticism is sometimes magicians, quite rightly, won't tell you how they did what they did. Mm-hmm. And so you get this rather weird tension build-up where they say, look, you know, I fooled you, it's a trick, but I'm not going to let you in on that trick. And that can make people, again, feel quite alienated. And I wanted to try and get away from that so the second half of the Color Change video is you really are coming backstage. You're seeing how we filmed it from a, a long shot rather than, the close-up shot and that's to get this feeling of inclusivity that that you're in on the gag with us and that we are exploring perception and the limits of perception or whatever together rather than I know something you don't and I'm not going to tell you what that something is so again it's coming at skepticism from a a very slightly different angle It's, it's it's rather than tricking people it's kind of having fun with everyone as a, as a group, and, and that's why in my talks I, I don't do very many magic tricks. I tend to do demonstrations, which I then go on to explain in such a way that kind of people, I hope, feel included rather than excluded.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's often the, the gulf between skeptics and believers. I mean, ironically, believers are find it hard to believe that people can be so easily deceived, that they're skeptical, if you will, of that concept, sometimes, you know, half of our battle in trying to bridge the gulf between skeptics and believers is just trying to give people a more full appreciation for you know, the, the way that, that our minds work.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing about lots of believers is they, they sort of take it personally. They're convinced that they can't be fooled about the one thing they are interested in. Mm -hmm. So if you're a believer in UFOs, you'll go, well, I know people, you know, Bigfoot, I can't believe people are stupid enough to believe in Bigfoot and how weird it is they think we have psychic powers. But of course, you know, UFOs are genuine. And then you get other people who say, you know, I don't know, I went to a medium, got a genuine reading there, but those idiots that go to the psychics, my goodness, they're wasting their time. So there's this weird kind of, sense that, that they as individuals cannot be fooled mm-hmm. that other people can be and that's a very very dangerous self-belief you know we, we all need to know if, if magic teaches us one thing it's that even after you know all the principles perception all the things about deception you can still be fooled um, that's just the way we work we make shortcuts all the time otherwise we wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning and interact with the world and those shortcuts mean that, that whoever you are however knowledgeable you can be fooled
1: so are you concerned then that even though you may teach people these principles through these demonstrations, that they may not be taking that final step and applying it to their own beliefs? And, and how do we make that final connection?
0: Well, in, in a sense, I, I don't push that. I, I want to. I think what I do is, is more, more experiential and more emotional. I want people to come and to enjoy that clip, to go, oh my goodness. Uh, I just had this experience, I I found it an enjoyable one, but it makes me curious, I should go and explore more, and just maybe makes me doubt a little bit some of the ways in which I I look at the world, whether they're skeptical or or believers. I, I don't really push that hard, skeptical message in that way. I've been doing it with some of my other work for sort of 10 years, but weirdly enough, I think... A softer approach actually may, may have inroads into some of the communities we want to get into rather than a, a kind of thumping the table and saying none of this is true.
1: Right. So you're planting seeds and just hoping that they grow, basically.
0: That, that's a, a very neat way of saying what I said in, in two
1: or three minutes, yes. yeah. I, I've been meaning to ask you a couple of questions because I'm obviously very interested in your in your psychological work and there's two tangential fields that I think you know, t- uh, touch on psychology and I'm always interested to know what psychologists think about this. One is neuroscience itself, just the study of how the brain works, which is, a, the, which is the, you know, as I'm a neuroscientist, that's I'm a neurologist, that's the approach that, that I often come to uh, with, with these questions, so uh, f- with in your career as a psychologist, how much do you get involved with thinking about the uh, the, the new evidence and the new science of how the how what how what you're studying relates to how the brain
0: functions as an organ? Is that something you even get, get involved with? I, I can't think of anything less interesting. I mean, I, I'm really. I mean, I, I think neuroscience is fascinating. I think as it applies within a clinical setting, um, I think it's 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 a a, a fantastic tool uh, that, that that we have and a fantastic approach to understanding in terms of For a quote normal functioning where in the brain anything is happening to me is probably the least interesting question you can ask so if i'm going to go speed dating Mm -hmm. i want to know the best pickup line i want to know what clothes i should wear i want to know what kind of body language um you know i should be engaged in where in the brain the person opposite me finds me attractive or not just doesn't interest me at all and and so uh, as a social psychologist, I'm, I'm not big on brain scanning. Where in the brain just kind of doesn't do it for me. I've rarely heard of a brain scanning study that told me anything that's made me go, wow, that's really helpful.
1: Yeah, that's a, I, I hear where you're coming from. I think my sense of the, the last 5 to 10 years of neuroscience is that it's actually confirming stuff that's already been discovered by the social and behavioral psychologists. It's just saying, yeah, here's the actual anatomical basis of what you guys have figured out 10, 20 years ago. So that's why I was just interested in if, that, if the talk is going the other way or if, you know, the psychologists, are, or how much attention is being paid to, you know, what the, what the neurologists are doing.
0: I, th- I think you're absolutely right that you'd only scan something where you have a behavioral effect and, of mm-hmm. course, then it's the behavioral people that will tell you it's worth scanning. The,
1: the other question I had for you, and again, this is tangential to what you do, so this may not be you may not have any opinion on it, but have you thought at all about um, the work of evolutionary psychologists and, and do you think at all about the... the social the social psychology in terms of how and why it may have evolved. But again, I know it's not necessary for what you do, but I'm curious if that's something that you're interested in.
0: Well, I, I, I'm, I just sound like a bitter old man tonight. Um, the, I, I'm not a fan of evolutionary psychology either. I think for some topics, like attraction, for example, I'm sure there are deep evolutionary roots to it. But then what we do is we start to try and find evolutionary reasons for every single piece of behavior. And of course, they're, they're coming just so stories. Yes, you can say, you know, why do, I don't know, uh, men find women who are blonde head more attractive than, than brunettes? Well, yes, you can come out with an evolutionary reason for that if you try hard enough, but it may not be true. It may be entirely cultural which is nothing to do with our evolutionary past at all and i do think that there is a slight worry that by constantly interpreting every aspect of our behavior in an evolutionary context we play into the hands of those that are skeptical about evolution mm-hmm. who point to some of these things and say well actually there's no evidence for this at all these people are just putting forward these stories and i think that they're right Obviously not to question evolution and, and there are some aspects of behavior which I think are clearly evolutionary and, and, and fascinating. I think again we extend that concept too far. I suspect a lot of our behavior, you know, is cultural, is social, it, it is not hardwired into the brain at all.
1: Or it's just epiphenomenological. It's just, you know, not everything that happens has needs an evolutionary cause. Just Things just happen because they do sometimes.
0: Yeah, or because we've been brought up to, to think that that's the, the thing to think, or, or, or whatever. You know, it doesn't need to date back thousands of years. You know, it could date back tens of years.
1: And, and you're absolutely right. The creationists and intelligent designers do make that argument all the time. They say these are just so stories, there's no evidence for it. You can... You know weave an evolutionary fantasy for anything
0: now, that, that's right and, and, and so I, I think it kind of gives them ammunition in that sense um, and, and gives them straw men to, to play with so I think we're better off sticking you know with, with the stuff where we have really good evidence this probably does have you know a sort of hardwired evolutionary um, sort of background to it, which, which some aspects of behavior clearly do, but but not everything does
1: What are some of the experiments you're working on right now
0: we're doing all sorts of things we're on the site we are looking at the psychology of uh, attraction in terms of a kind of fun study looking at if you want to uh, impress a member of the opposite sex, what kind of sport are you kind of best being involved in um, and it's some fascinating sort of mismatches between male and uh, female perspectives on that. So guys think um, that actually you, you, if you want to attract a woman you should kind of be into the gym and bodybuilding, and actually women are massively turned off by that. So, so that's, that's one of the studies. Hmm. Uh, right at the moment, uh, literally right at the moment, my computer at the moment. We're looking at the psychology of New Year's resolutions, so we've just been tracking 5,000 people over 12 months as they attempted to keep their New Year's resolutions. Um, and what we can do is really uh, look at uh, the, the very small percent, percentage that were successful and unpack the strategies that they were using, uh, because most people failed, uh, but it was a very small percentage successful, and I want to know what is it that they were doing differently. Uh, so again, this is uh, obviously that's a very topical story right at the moment, and, and one which I think you know people are going to be interested in.
2: I, I have a question, Richard. Um, if there was one scientist, either living or historical, who you could sleep with, who would it be and why?
0: <laughs> um, I think it would be Madame Curie, um, because you could find her in the dark. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that's probably not a very acceptable answer, I'm thinking, um, no. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but if if it were anyone, uh, it would be her. Um, yeah, yeah. Possibly she's dead, so that's another bonus. Uh
2: huh. Well, yeah, I know you like that sort of thing, so <laughs> that's good. Okay, and obviously she couldn't complain. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> that's right. <I> <laughs> like like, like it all it. of the others do. That's right. Yeah, yeah.
2: Richard, you and I have both
1: been interviewed on a uh, a, a podcast called Skeptico. You know, with Alex Securis, and part of what you discussed was the um, the Rupert Sheldrake psychic dog experiments, and this. Yeah. It, so th- this is something you, you know, replicated a number of years ago, and this has become a, a area of controversy, I think, within the parapsychological you know, circles. But let me just give you an opportunity to to update us on 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 that. Have you had a chance to to, to look at this, you know, Shell Drake's data or his research, and what do you think about it?
0: Yeah, the dog thing we did—I can't remember now—too many years ago, um, and it was when the uh, claim wasn't very well formed about really what the dog was doing, how it was informing you that its owner was allegedly coming home. And 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 so we tested the dog very early on in that process. We didn't find any evidence of psychic ability. Uh, Rupert then came along did his own tests using a different uh, procedure and claimed the dog was was psychic. And then reanalyzed our data and found the same patterns in our data that he has uh, in his. And I think those patterns are, are there as well. The question is interpretation of them and I think there is a complexity to this because you have really two competing explanations uh, for or potential explanations for, for what's happening. Uh, in addition to him potentially being psychic. One is that the dog is simply going to the, the, this porch area more and more over time. Uh, the second is the dog somehow knows when his owner is going to be returning home uh, because of the, the, the sort of behavioural uh, cues that uh, the owner may have given before uh, she left or indeed the owner's parents who are with the dog all the time uh, may have given whilst they're with the dog. And I don't think Rupert's experiments rule those out uh, as, as possibilities. So what I'm doing at the moment is just writing a kind of little mini critique of that, and I'll post that up on my website uh, at some point very soon. But like all these things, there really is a complexity to them. All of the psychic stuff they've been involved in over the years, on the face of it, if you don't look at the, the data in a huge amount of detail, then it looks pretty good. But you really have to get in there... And, and, and sort of scout around to find potential problems. And it's, I, I've done it a little bit. Ray Hyman has done it uh, a lot. It soaks up a massive amount of time and not too many people thank you for doing it. So it, it, it's an important task. Um, but there normally is a complexity to these things which takes a very long time to tease out.
1: Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, not too many people thank you for. And that was actually anticipates my, my next question is, I do think it's very important that, scientists like yourself do spend some time essentially peer-reviewing the controversial or or, um, parapsychological or paranormal research, because otherwise it goes unanswered, and they just, I think, have free reign preaching their nonsense to the public. But uh, and you have been one of the few people who has actually gone as far as to try to collaborate with parapsychological or pro paranormal researchers. And you know, looking back on on that, to the extent that which you have done it, do you think that it's worthwhile, or do you think that it's ultimately a waste of time?
0: I, I think that if people get into the parapsychological literature. And by that, I mean the more serious side of it. I mean, not really the dog stuff. I mean, a few people debate that. To be honest, most serious parapsychologists are not too interested in that type of data. But once you look at the the Gansfeld telepathy studies, maybe some of the PK stuff and and so on, it's a pretty serious literature carried out by serious people. They seem to have some kind of anomaly floating around in there. And I think that justifies spending some time with that, that data and with those claims. However, what you see over really the last 60 years or so of, of parapsychology is them jumping from one claim to another. There, there's just been this series of false dawns. that, that uh, you know, one decade is remote viewing, the next is Gansfeld, and then it's about presentiment, you know, essentially predicting the future. There's no consistency to the literature. And, and so what you mustn't do is get drawn into this always evaluating the, the next new thing and just forgetting about the past as if it hasn't happened. I think the onus now is on parapsychologists to go, okay, this is the claim, this is how we're going to test it with a systematic research, you know, everything's going to be pre-specified in terms of analysis and sample size and so on. And this is the exit strategy. You know, if this one doesn't work out, maybe we're not going to be doing it for the next 10 years after that because otherwise it's totally unfalsifiable. Uh, You just keep on going, getting these odd anomalies and keep switching anomalies once they fail to replicate. So I think there needs to be some way of kind of saying, look, you know, there's only going to be X more times we're going to look around the corner to see if there's anything to it. So I do think it's worth collaborating. I think methodologically it's really interesting and from a sociological perspective it's interesting but I don't want to spend the rest of my life constantly looking around that corner and, and finding actually it's the wrong corner because it's the, the next one up the street I should be looking around.
1: But it, it certainly does not seem to be the, the direction that the parapsychologists themselves are going in. I mean, I, I agree with you. My sense of looking at the history of this and, the, and all the literature is that there's essentially going around in circles without ever making any forward progress or accruing any Anything solid, So they really have nothing to show for all the research that they've done so far. But they also, there also doesn't seem to be any end in sight. I think that they're going to be doing this pretty much indefinitely. In medicine, in areas that I'm, I'm directly familiar with in my career, what, when you have different sides of, of, uh, of, of the two camps or two different sides of a, of a belief – Eventually, they get together and do a consensus study, and then everyone abides by the results in the end and go on, goes on with their life. But I've never seen that happen in, in the parapsychological realm.
0: That's right. There's very few of those joint studies out there, though. And I think if there were more, if there's more collaboration, I think there'd be more understanding of the other side's perspective proponents really often say to the skeptics look nothing will convince you you know there's no point in working with you because however much evidence nothing will convince you but in fact in my opinion the opposite is true of believers as well that nothing will stop them that that because psi is such a nebulous concept they don't even know what they're looking for they will always find it somewhere in a big messy data set The fact it doesn't replicate then becomes part of the procedure. Well, size like that is very elusive, so you always have to come up with new procedures, and then, you know, they don't replicate and and so on. So I think one of the key questions to any proponent is, look, what will cause you, what data set would cause you to drop this hypothesis? And if they can specify those conditions, then I think it's probably worth doing the experiments. But that approach hasn't been tried. It's sort of the opposite. Each time it's been this kind of, you know, trawl through the data, look, there's an anomaly here. Let's all focus on that. Oh, it doesn't replicate. Not to worry. Let's try something new. And let's keep on doing that. And, and it was a field I was heavily involved in for about 10 years. And it's not too much fun to be a skeptic in it, uh, because the skeptics don't think it's true. The believers hate you for criticizing their data. Um, so I'm having a lot more fun now doing some of the, the quackology stuff. But I, I do think it's an important endeavor for skeptics.
1: Richard, I, we appreciate uh, you coming back on and giving us giving us your time. Before you go, you know, tell us what uh, your plans are for the future.
0: Well, uh, for the immediate future, I'm going to be looking at the the New Year's resolution uh, work. There is uh, another book, uh, another. Quarkology type book in the pipeline, which uh, focuses a uh, little bit more on some of the, the areas we've been talking about in the, the latter part of the interview, and there's also a lot more YouTube videos to be uh, coming out very soon. So uh, I, I think it's more the same, but it's it's sort of extending into these areas that have been successful in the past, which really do focus on, on getting science and skepticism out there in a way in which it, it really reaches some of those communities which traditional skepticism has, has kind of struggled to reach.
1: That, that all sounds great. Are you going to TAM 6 in 2008? Uh, that is my hope,
0: uh, yes. Yeah, I, I, I hope to be there. Uh, they're, they're fantastic events. You know, I think this will be my fourth one. So there's always an issue about coming up with uh, new and exciting uh, material. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, will be there being, you know, hilarious as, mm-hmm. as I always am. I'm a very, very, very <laughs> funny person. That's
1: right. <laughs> well, we go, we will, we'll definitely, if I, we hope you're there, we'll definitely see you there. If, uh, if you do come, we're all going to be there.
0: Uh, excellent. Good. Yes. This year I'm going disguised as either Randy or Michael Shermer. So, mm-hmm. uh, if, if you <laughs> see either of those people, it could be me.
1: I see. Um, how, and how will we tell the difference?
0: There's no way. The disguises are really good. Um, I see. There's nothing. There's nothing you can do.
1: There's no way to falsify it.
0: Absolutely nothing. It's like parapsychology. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, Richard, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you.
5: It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. the theme is news stories science news stories of 2007 so these are some of the uh, interesting news stories that we that we missed throughout the year and I have four items this this week instead of three, so three uh, are real and one sneaky. is fake. Everyone ready? (laughs) Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Item number one. Images taken by the Hinode Solar Telescope revealed the sun to be almost a half a billion years older than previously estimated. Item number two. Fossil evidence suggests that Velociraptor had feathers. Item number three. Physicists have created the first true invisibility cloak. And item number four, scientists thought out an eight million year old bacterium from Antarctic ice that was alive and well. Rebecca, why don't you go first this week?
2: Uh, okay. Um, let's see. Images taken by the telescopes saying the sun is almost half a billion years older than previously estimated. That seems suspicious to me. Velociraptors having feathers—that makes sense. Um, although that's that maybe makes a little too much sense. That sounds like something you might have made up just to throw me off. Um, invisibility cloak, yeah, they've had that for years. You just can't see it, so it's not making good news. And thawing out bacteria from Antarctic ice, um, that sounds familiar. I think that happened. You know, I'm going to go with the velociraptor thing, because that seems like it, it seems perfectly normal and ordinary, but so probably wrong.
1: Okay, Evan? Solar telescope
3: revealing the sun a half billion years older. I think that's right, because I think they constantly like playing with the numbers, age of the universe, age of stars, and so forth, and those seem to be always under some kind of fluctuation, so I'm not surprised by that. Velociraptor had feathers. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe not fossil evidence suggesting that. I mean, maybe they did, but I don't know about that one. Invisibility cloak? Sure. Why not? And then 8 million year old bacterium in the Antarctic. Uh, Absolutely plausible. I think that's the most plausible of all of them. So I'll agree with Rebecca. I think Velociraptor having feathers in fossil evidence is not correct.
4: Okay, Jay. The sun being a half billion years older, that just doesn't sound like something that we would have missed. That's a lot of time. I don't think that we would be that far off the velociraptors with the feathers i think absolutely yeah i think they're they very easily could have found evidence for that um that you know that that wasn't it wasn't previously preserved or whatever sure the invisibility cloak uh that's one of those i i want it to be true desperately and um i'm just going to say yeah i remember reading some stuff not too long ago where they were working on things like that uh, but that could be the one that you you trick us on steve and the uh, the bacteria, absolutely. I, I don't specifically remember reading anything about that, but that one sounds totally plausible. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the sun. I'm gonna say the sun is is not a half billion years
5: older than they previously estimated. Okay, Bob. Now these are tricky. Let's see, half a billion year older sun. Yeah, that does seem like I like what Jay said about that. It does seem like it's a it's a little bit much to have missed up until up until this year velociraptor having feathers i mean there's there's different types of velociraptors i mean that that makes sense but that could easily be just a f- totally fake story um the invisibility cloak there's been a lot about those metamaterial metamaterials they're fascinating and that's that's totally totally plausible and the 8 million year old bacterium uh, 8 million years certainly seems like a damn long time but uh, it'd take a lot for bacteria it's extremophiles to uh really surprise me um Therefore, <laughs> therefore, it's between, therefore, it's between the um, solar telescope and the velociraptor having feathers. Man, I would have, would have heard about the velo- velociraptor having feathers. I'm going to go with um, one. The sun. The sun, half a billion years.
1: Okay, so we're divided. Uh, Evan and Rebecca think that velociraptor having feathers is fake, and Jay and Bob, you think that the sun being half a billion years older is fake. You all agree that scientists have thought out an 8-million-year-old bacterium from Antarctic ice that was alive and well, and that story is, in fact, science. Uh, Yeah, 8 million years is an awfully long time, but I guess once you're fully frozen, it doesn't really matter. The only difference was that the bacteria, once it thought out, was a little sluggish in its growth rate, but otherwise it was perfectly alive and well and able to replicate, etc. So very, very interesting. Bacteria can do amazing things, so... That one isn't that su- that uh, surprising. Yeah,
5: my my favorite thing that ba- ba- a certain kind of bacteria can do is, after the bacteria's DNA is completely blown apart by radiation, it just puts it back together. Yeah, right. Oh, pardon me for a moment. Uh, I'm just uh, put my bacteria- my DNA back on. No yeah, problem. They're extremely hardy.
1: Extremely hardy. You will also agree that physicists have created the first true invisibility cloak. Uh, this was the one that I figured you would have the highest chance of actually remembering. Um, from from earlier in the year, this one is science. This was a story out in the middle of the year, which we we just never got around to talking about on the show. So I thought I would include it in, in this our last
5: middle of the year. There's there's a brand new story about this news yeah, this, item about Yeah, this, this, this one's from
1: October actually. The the, uh, the one that I'm referring to. But yeah, this is this is you're right. Not just one isolated event, but this is a one that was developed uh, in or that was announced in October. So this one, they created an invisibility cloak that worked in the microwave region of the electromagnetic spectrum, and now this is the first time they've done it using visible light. Right. So this is at, at optical frequencies. Wavelengths get very tiny, and the range of properties available for materials is limited, but they were able to you know, come up with the correct materials to create this effect using gold ripples. That was the, that was the key ingredient. What's a gold ripple? Is that like a drink?
3: <laughs> it sounds like it. Mm-hmm. It does sound like it. Oh, the gold ripple.
1: You know, it's like, what <laughs> so that one is science, which leaves us down to the Velociraptors and the sun. Aha. come on, Velociraptors! Let's do let's do the Velociraptor one. Well, hold on a second, go in reverse Evan. <laughs> you want to throw some
4: money down on this one?
3: Uh, money, sure. Five bucks. Uh, how about? All right, four fifty. Are we allowed to are we allowed <laughs> to bet on this show? Sure. We're not violating any <laughs> FCC rules or anything. Okay. I have
1: no idea. I didn't think frankly that it would ever come up. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Well, fossil evidence suggests that Velociraptor had feathers and this story is dun 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 science. Oh, ah! science. Where am I going to come up with $5? <laughs> 5 dollars? 5 dollars. <laughs> the Velociraptor was uh, you know, probably best known for its uh portrayal on Jurassic Park. Although uh, the Velociraptors on Jurassic Park are actually – on Jurassic Park are much larger than they really were. But what they found – Wait a second. Wait a second.
5: I've read stories where after they filmed the movie, they found Velociraptor evidence that showed that they they were darn close to the size as they were portrayed –
1: there is only one Velociraptor species, and that is the size of a turkey. So Velociraptors are the, were the size of turkeys. However, around the time of the making of Jurassic Park, there was talk of making another theropod species called Deinonychus, which is about the size of the Velociraptors that were displayed in the movie Jurassic Park, that they were going to be moved under the genus Velociraptor, but that never came to fruition, and the idea was dropped. So Velociraptors are the size of turkeys, although, again, there are other dinosaurs that are as big as the ones that were used in the movie. Wait, the Velociraptor was the size of a turkey? Yeah, that's right. And there were smaller ones, like the Microraptor, which are really, really tiny ones. So nothing like in Jurassic Park, they were not that big? Didn't they look bigger because they were chasing kids around, you know? (laughs) (laughs) In any case, they found... Bumps on the forearms of the Velociraptor fossils, these knobs, and the uh, examination of these features indicates that they look like quill knobs, or basically the insertion, uh, the bony insertions of large uh, feathers, of limb feathers. It's the exact same pattern that you would see on a bird, for example. So this suggests that the Velociraptor had feathers on its forelimbs, uh, however they probably were not large enough to enable flight no one is suggesting that the velociraptor was able to fly so these were these were feathers but not developed enough or not not large enough for flight so they must have served some other purpose
4: steve were they vestigial were they from an earlier version of the velociraptor possibly
1: i doubt that they were vestigial i mean meaning that an ancestor to the velociraptor had was able to fly or had larger uh, wings, or yeah, or, 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 or use feathers. them for something—protection, warmth. Doubtful. Uh, I think that you know the, the Velociraptors predate of uh, uh, birds and the theropod dinosaurs that evolved into birds, but they probably use. I mean, there are lots of. Um, hypotheses as to what they used them for. They could have used them, for example, to help maneuver while they were running. They could have used them as a mating display. Downy feathers, of course, could, would, could are used for insulation. But but these knobs, these quill knobs, would uh, have produced larger feathers with a with a shaft. So not not like fluffy down.
3: And they're positive that's what these things were.
1: They're not positive. That's why I said the fossil evidence suggests it. Uh, it the they. Show the comparison between the uh, the structures on the Velociraptor forelimb and say that of an ostrich, and it looks pretty convincing. I mean, you have this evenly spaced out little bumps that look pr- just like the quill knobs on modern birds. So it's it's very suggestive. Uh, we've never found a Velociraptor with with feather impressions,
3: right? Uh, right. Yeah,
1: that that would be the confirmatory evidence, but that takes a very special fossil bed. You know, not all fossils are preserved. To, the, to that degree. Like, for example, in the, the uh, Archaeopteryx fossils, like the Berlin specimen, these are beautiful fossils, but these were captured in uh, like limestone, where there you get a real full impression of the animal, including the soft parts, not just the bones themselves. But not all fossil beds preserve that detail. So we, it's just waiting... Awaiting the day that we find uh, a velociraptor preserved in such a way that we, could, that we would be able to see some of the, the soft parts, and then we'll know if it, if it had feathers or not. <laughs> All of which means that, number one, images taken by the Hinode H- 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 Solar Telescope revealed the sun to be almost a half a billion years older than previously estimated is, in fact, fiction. That is not true. The sun is actually 4.57 billion years old, and that's a, probably a fairly precise estimate of its age. We, we have a pre- we, we've worked out pretty well the, the life cycle of stars, and we could tell an, a, an amazing amount of things about stars just by looking at the light from them, uh, including their age. This solar telescope is real, and uh, has been giving us a lot of great images of the sun. It has an X-ray telescope, an ultraviolet telescope, as well as an optical telescope. And uh, it has been, it been imaging very um, fascinating things about the sun, learning a lot about its magnetic fields and its, a lot of its structure, including some very, very surprising things, uh, but nothing that alters the age of the sun. That part was made up. So you lied. Okay. So congratulations, Bob and Jay. Yeah, hey, Bob. These are tougher when I'm pulling news stories that could be months and months old, yeah. as opposed to from the previous week. Cause, well, you know, yeah, it's it's they're not as fresh in your mind.
4: So that's your new thing. So like now I shouldn't even bother hmm. reading the news at all anymore.
1: Well, no, I I, I did this at the because it's the end of the year. This is our last science or fiction for 2007. I did the same thing last year because I pulled ones from. The we're previous not doing we're not doing one next week. No. Next in our wrap-up so show, so? no. no, no one. Next week, we're gonna, as Bob has alluded to, we're going to do our year-in-review wrap-up show, but there's not going to be a new science or fiction for that, for that week. This brings us to the skeptical puzzle. Evan, could you read last week's puzzle for us? Sure. Last week's
3: puzzle was as such. If I recommend to you that for your health, you need to take castor oil, get your head checked for subtle shape changes, receive peanut oil massages, Eat some charcoal tablets and iodine supplements. Receive electrical shocks, and finally engage in re- in regular prayer. Then, who am I?
1: Uh, Evan Bernstein.
3: <laughs> besides me, the first one who actually suggested this was the sleeping prophet himself, Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey. So you know, who do we have a winner? We do have a winner, and in fact, the winner this week and I don't recognize the name from before but special ed from the message boards was the first one to correctly guess it so special ed congratulations well done (laughs) nice job Evan do we have a puzzle for this week yes we do two famous skeptical events are related one lasted about 18 seconds the other happened four years later and lasted about 58 seconds what were they
4: your first so, sexual not, encounter.
3: Not much to go not much to go by there, but if you think about it really hard, you'll probably come up with it. So, good luck everyone.
1: Okay, thank you, Evan. Jay, do you have a quote for us to close out the show? I have a fantastic quote
4: from one of my most favorite people that that ever lived. This is a quote from Bruce Lee. Many of you probably know who he is, but he was an American-born martial artist who's also considered a philosopher. He was an instructor, a martial arts actor in some of the best movies like Enter the Dragon, Return of the Dragon, The Chinese Connection. I can go on, but you know my love of, of Kung Fu movies. And uh, he also was the founder of Jeet Kundo, which is a martial arts system, and it's a, it's a popular one. And Bruce Lee said, A wise man can learn more from a foolish question than a fool can learn from a wise answer. Bruce Lee!
0: <laughs> very,
4: Bruce very Lee. cool dude. What's One of my take- favorite people growing up, I mean...
1: Yeah. Taken you know, from us too soon, too. I remember how devastated yep. we all were when we heard that he died? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What was
4: he, 32? What was the final result on what killed him? You know, his brain swelled from something.
1: Yeah, he had, he had a cerebral edema, a cerebral... Probably had some kind of a... Inflammation in the brain. I never really heard like a modern medical explanation for what the what the diagnosis was. I mean, you know, early seventies. It's back in the dark ages, you know. Well, thank you all for joining me again. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. This I is enjoy our, joining. This you. is thank our you. last episode,
4: our last regular episode of 'O Seven.
1: That's right. We yep. will be back next week with a year in review episode. And then uh, back in January. After that, with our regular format, once again, like to ask Woo-hoo. our listeners if you
4: enjoyed the show this year. You can uh, show some support by making a small donation. You can also go to Dig or leave a, a nice comment for us up on on iTunes. We always appreciate any kind of feedback. Also, keep sending in your emails. Um, we still do read all the emails, and we appreciate everyone that we get, even though we don't respond to all of them at this point. We do read all of
1: them. We do. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Canedo and is used with permission.